nothing to try to hide No, it's just your emotion This is how it goes oh, No words really need to be said It's one more day swiftly or it can ride away oh plates below are shifting it's a simple life indeed oh enjoy
And that was Ryan Harvey with Counting the Dead. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders and progressive and radical activism. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Find out more about Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. You'll find all the back episodes there. You'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Some milestones matter to the commercial media. Others, not so much. When the recorded deaths in the United States neared 100,000, they couldn't actually wait until it reached 100,000 for some reason, probably because it wouldn't neatly align with their Memorial Day weekend Sunday edition. The New York Times felt the milestone was important enough to dedicate the front page and two inside pages to what the headline called, quote, an incalculable loss. Bravo and boo. Bravo for recognizing the humanity of these lives and the collective loss to that humanity, to our collective society, due to these lives lost. Boo for perpetuating the media narrative that some lives matter. When the media recognizes that some lives matter but others don't, they participate in the devaluation of all lives. Or as Ice-T and Body Count put it, no lives matter. Quote, this shit is ugly to the core when it comes to the poor. No lives matter. So by featuring these lives, these U.S. lives, on the front page of the paper, they said, these lives matter. These lives were important. And for many, they added a small blurb about that person, about that individual, something that stood out to the author about that life lost. We should remember these lives lost. These are people we know, people we loved, people we don't know. People we never met, people we now will never meet. And they had lives and they did important things. Some did great things, some did terrible things. But they did things that impacted our society and impacted our community. And featuring them is the right thing to do. The wrong thing, the thing that gets them a big boo, is the implication that by featuring these lives, that these lives somehow were greater or better or more important 
than the millions of others li- other lives lost under terrible circumstances. Sure, these lives are unique. These lives are unique because they were lost in the COVID-19 pandemic. There are many other groups of unique lives lost. And many of them not due to a virus, due to a medical condition, but due to the choices made by others, the choices made by people in power, the choices made by those people who put those people in power. So these 100,000 dead are important. But so are the hundreds of thousands, probably more than a million dead in Iraq due to our decades of wars there. So are the 91,000 or so victims of the Yemen civil war, the war that we participate in and perpetuate by arming Saudi Arabia and by material and military support for their actions in that war, actions that include bombing a busload of children. Those lives matter. Every one of those lives matter. The 500,000 plus dead in Syria and the Syrian civil war matter. Those are people, those are humans. Those were people who would have gone on some to do great and amazing things. Maybe one of them would have found a, a cure for cancer. Maybe one of them would have committed atrocities. We'll never know. But we do know that the thing that facilitated their deaths, those deaths in war, that was atrocity. So bravo New York Times and other media for appropriately reminding us that human lives matter But uh, stop being particular about which human lives you decide to feature. You're doing a grave disservice to society by the choices you make and the things that you push forward and the things you cheerlead, including those wars, and in the things that you obscure and the things that you hide and the things that you diminish by your choices. On to social media, this next piece or this first piece is written by Virginia Alvino Young. It's published at Carnegie Mellon University School of Computer Science, cs.cmu.edu. CMU researchers say sophisticated orchestrated bot campaigns aim to sow divide. Scrolling through your Twitter feed, it may not be obvious when you come upon a bot account, something that is more likely to occur in the era of COVID-19. Carnegie Mellon University researchers have discovered that much of the discussion around the pandemic and stay-at-home orders 
is being fueled by misinformation campaigns that use convincing bots. To analyze bot activity around the pandemic, CMU researchers since January have collected more than 200 million tweets discussing coronavirus or COVID-19. Of the top 50 influential retweeters, 82% are bots, they found. Of the top 1,000 retweeters, 62% are bots. The monitoring of tweets is ongoing and collections from Facebook, Reddit, and YouTube have been added to the research. Quote, we're seeing up to two times as much bot activity as we'd predicted based on previous natural disasters, crises, and elections, said Kathleen Carley, a professor in the School of Computer Sciences Institute for Software Research and director of the Center for Computational Analysis of Social and Organizational Systems, CASOS, and Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity, IDEAS. Carly said multiple factors contribute to the surge. First, more individuals have time on their hands to create do-it-yourself bots. But the number of sophisticated groups that hire firms to run bot accounts also has increased. The nature of the pandemic matters too. Quote, because it's global, it's being used by various countries and interest groups as an opportunity to meet political agendas, she said. Carly's research team uses multiple methods to determine who is or isn't a bot. Artificial intelligence processes account information and looks at things, such as the number of followers, frequency of tweeting, and an account's mentions network. Quote, tweeting more frequently than is humanly possible or appearing to be in one country, and then another a few hours later, is indicative of a bot, Carly said. More than 100 types of inaccurate COVID-19 stories have been identified, such as those about potential cures. But bots are also dominating conversations about ending stay-at-home orders and, quote, reopening America. Many factors of the online discussions about reopening America suggest that bot activity is orchestrated. One indicator is the large number of bots, many of which are accounts that were recently created. Accounts that are possibly humans with bot assistance generate 66% of the tweets. Accounts that are definitely bots generate 34% of the tweets. Quote, when we see a whole bunch of tweets at the same time or back to back, it's like they're timed, Carly said. We also look for use of the same exact hashtag or messaging that appears to be copied and pasted from one bot to the next. A subset of tweets about reopening America reference conspiracy theories, such as hospitals being filled with mannequins or the coronavirus being linked to 5G towers. Quote, conspiracy theories increase polarization in groups. It's what many misinformation campaigns aim to do, Carly said. People have real concerns about health and the economy, and people are preying on that to create divides. Carly said that spreading conspiracy theories leads to more extreme opinions, which can in turn lead to more extreme behavior and less rational thinking. Quote, increased polarization will have a variety of real-world consequences and play out in things like voting behavior and hostility towards ethnic groups, Carly said. 
The research team cannot point to specific entities behind the orchestrated attempts to influence online conversations. Quote, we do know that it looks like it's propaganda machine, and it definitely matches the Russian and Chinese playbooks, but it would take a tremendous amount of resources to substantiate that, Carly said, which is dangerous to uh, put forward that opinion, even with the caveat that we're not sure who it is, but it's similar to the Russian and Chinese playbooks. Why pin it on somebody if you're not sure who it is? Carly adds that not enough is known to develop a countermeasure. Blocked accounts can resurface, and the nature of the network is such that you can't just attack at individual points. But she said average users can do a lot to help protect themselves from bot influence. There's no guarantee, but closely examining an account can offer indications of a bot such as sharing links with sub subtle typos, many tweets coming out very quickly, or a username and profile image that don't seem to match up. Quote, Even if someone appears to be from your community, if you don't know them personally, take a closer look and always go to authoritative or trusted sources for information, Carly said. Just be very vigilant. And this next piece will help give you a little bit more information on how these things happen, why they happen, the mindset of those behind them, those that believe in them, and how to protect yourself a bit. This piece is written by Marshall Allen and is published by ProPublica.org. Quote, immune to evidence, how dangerous coronavirus conspiracies spread. Stephen Lewandowski studies the way people think, and in particular, why they engage in conspiracy theories. So when the cognitive scientist from England's University of Bristol observes wild speculation related to the COVID-19 pandemic, he sees how it fits to the historical pattern of misinformation and fake news. I recently wrote about the viral video, Plandemic, as an investigative reporter assessing the range of unsubstantiated COVID-19 allegations put forth by a controversial researcher. Lewandowski comes at the video and others like it from a science-based perspective. He is one of the authors of The Conspiracy Theory Handbook, which explains the traits of conspiratorial thinking. Conspiracy theories related to the COVID-19 pandemic seem to be proliferating, and some may even be taking root. So I asked Lewandowski to share how he identifies and understands them, and what we can do to sort through the confusion. The interview has been condensed for clarity and length. What's the difference between a real conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? A real conspiracy actually exists, and it is usually uncovered by journalists, whistleblowers, document dumps from a corporation or government, or it's discovered by a government agency. The Volkswagen emission scandal, for example, was discovered by conventional ways when some engineers discovered an anomaly in a report. It was all mundane, normal people having normal observations based on data. They said, hang on, something's funny here and then it unraveled. The same is true for the Iran-Contra scandal. 
that broke via a newspaper in Lebanon. True conspiracies are often uncovered through the media. In Watergate, it was journalists not taking no for an answer. A conspiracy theory, on the other hand, is discussed at length on the internet by people who are not bona fide journalists or government officials or whistleblowers in an organization or investigative committees of regulators. They're completely independent sources, individuals who self-nominate and put themselves forward as being in possession of the truth. In principle, that could be true. But then if you look at the way these people think and talk and communicate, you discover their cognition is different from what I would call conventional cognition. What are some differences between conventional and conspiratorial thinking? You can start with healthy skepticism versus overriding suspicion. As a scientist, I'm obviously skeptical. I'm questioning anything people say. I look at my own data and at other people's data with a skeptical eye. But after skeptics have been skeptical, they are quite capable of accepting evidence. Once something has withstood scrutiny, you accept it. Otherwise, you're in a state of complete nihilism and you can't believe anything. That crucial second step of acceptance is absent in conspiracy theorists. That is where conspiracy theorists are different. Their skepticism is a bottomless, never-ending pit of skepticism about anything related to the official account. And that skepticism is accompanied by extreme gullibility to anything related to the conspiracy. It's an imbalance between skepticism for anything an official may say and a complete gullibility for something some random dude on the internet will tweet out. It's that imbalance that differentiates conspiracy thinking from standard cognition. Conspiracy thinking is immune to evidence. In the pandemic video, the absence of evidence is twisted to be seen to be evidence for the theory. They say the cover-up is so perfect that you will never find out about it. That's the opposite of rational thinking. Usually when you think of a hypothesis, you think of the evidence. And if there's zero evidence, you give it up or say there's no evidence for it. Conspiracy theorists may also simultaneously believe things that are contradictory. In the pandemic video, for example, they say COVID-19 both came from a Wuhan lab and that we're all infected with the disease from vaccinations. They're making both claims and they don't hang together. More generally, conspiracy theorists show this contradictory thinking by presenting themselves as both victims and heroes. They see themselves as these heroes in possession of the truth, but they also see themselves as victims. They feel they are being persecuted by this evil establishment or the deep state or whatever it is. Why do you think some conspiracy theories are so popular? Some people find comfort in resorting to a conspiracy theory whenever they have a sense of loss of control or they're confronted with a major adverse event that no one has control over. So every time there's a mass shooting in the U.S., I can guarantee you ahead of time that there will be a conspiracy theory about it. So you would expect conspiracy theories related to the pandemic. That doesn't make them any less harmful. Here in the United Kingdom, People are burning 5G cell towers because of this extreme idea that 5G has something to do with causing COVID-19. 
more than 70 cell towers have gone up in flames because of this conspiracy theory. Is conspiracy thinking at an all-time high? Historical records show that there were rampant conspiracy theories going on in the Middle Ages when the plague hit Europe. It was anti-Semitism at the time. That tends to be part and parcel of pandemics. People engage in conspiracies that involve some sort of othering of people. During the previous pandemics, people chased doctors down the street because they thought they were responsible for the pandemic. In Europe, now a lot of antagonism is directed at Asians because the pandemic started in China. The internet is helping the spread of conspiracy theories. It's much easier now than it was 30 years ago. But it's difficult to say we have more now. Are conservatives or liberals any more likely to engage in conspiracy thinking? There's a lot of research on this, and political conspiracy theories tend to be most associated with the extreme political views on the right or the left. But if you quantify it, you frequently find more on the right than the left. How do we talk to the conspiracy theorists in our lives? It's extremely difficult. In terms of strategy, the best people to talk to are people who are not conspiracy theorists. The vast majority of people are grateful for the debunking and responsive to it. That should be your target of communication if you have a choice. The hardcore conspiracy theorists are unlikely to change their minds. They will take what you say and display considerable ingenuity in twisting it and using it against you. On Twitter, I block them immediately because I'm concerned about my ability to have a rational conversation and I don't want others to violate that right. How do we prevent the spread of conspiracy theories? By trying to inoculate public against them. Telling the public ahead of time, look, there are people who believe these conspiracy theories. They invent this stuff. When they invent it, they exhibit these characteristics of misguided cognition. You can go through the traits we mentioned in our handbook, like incoherence, immunity to evidence, overriding suspicion, and connecting random dots into a pattern. The best thing to do is tell the public how they can spot conspiracy theories and how they can protect themselves. And next up is a piece written by Evan Greer. Evan Greer is Deputy Director of Fight for the Future, and this is published at Medium.com. It's titled, Facebook Told My Followers I Was Spreading Misinformation About Government Surveillance. I wasn't. Okay, I'll admit it. I still use Facebook. When I logged on last night, I saw something I had never seen before. A notification that read, quote, Partly false information found in your post by independent fact checkers. I was surprised, but figured maybe it was a glitch or related to some joke meme I had posted or something like that. I clicked to learn more. It turned out that, quote, independent fact checkers at USA Today had flagged a Vice article that I shared and am quoted in about the reauthorization of the Patriot Act and the ongoing fight around amendments to rein in mass government surveillance. This is an issue that my organization, Fight for the Future, has been working on for the better part of a decade. 
The post now contains a prominent flag shown to everyone who sees it, effectively censoring the original article and replacing it with a large link to the USA Today fact-checking piece instead. I clicked through to read why exactly they had decided the article was, quote, partly false. When it comes down to it, the independent fact-checker at USA Today was quibbling about semantics. The Vice headline read, quote, Senate votes to allow FBI to look at your web browsing history without a warrant. The article is referring to the Senate passing the USA Freedom Reauthorization Act, which reauthorizes several Patriot Act and Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act surveillance authorities, while failing to pass an amendment offered by Senators Wyden and Danes. The amendment would have required the FBI to get a warrant before snooping on internet activity, like web browsing and search history. The headline is provocative, but it is 100% true. And the article itself elaborates and explains the nuance. The fact checker is essentially claiming that the post is misinformation because the Senate didn't, quote, vote to allow. They just, quote, didn't vote to not allow. Even if that were true, it would be a pretty tenuous justification for effectively censoring information on a platform used by billions of people. But it's not true. The amendment was tacked on to the underlying bill, which reauthorizes FISA surveillance powers that are set to expire. So the senators who voted to reauthorize Section 215 and voted against the amendment absolutely did vote to allow warrantless government surveillance of Internet activity. The USA Today piece is significantly more false than the Vice piece. It appears that the USA Today fact checker first discovered the Vice article via a viral post from the Facebook page Being Libertarian. The fact checker took issue with some of the specific language that the page used when sharing the article. But it appears that Facebook has applied the partly false flag not just to that page's post, but to anyone who posts the same article. The USA Today piece relies heavily on, an, on quote, an email exchange with Stuart Baker, the former top lawyer for the National Security Agency and a staunch defender of mass government surveillance programs. They did not attempt to contact my organization, Fight for the Future, or experts from the ACLU, Free Press, Demand Progress, or any of the dozens of other reputable civil society organizations who have issued public statements that closely mirror the article's framing. It also does not appear they attempted to contact Senators Wyden or Danes, Vice, or the journalist who wrote the piece. In the end, they claim that the article is quote partly false, based on a fairly generous read of how the FISA court works and their best guess at how a reader might interpret the headline and article. Without due process or a meaningful way to appeal the decision, this, quote, fact-checker became judge, jury, and executioner, killing the spread of an organically viral post about government surveillance at a time when activists are working around the clock to inform the public about an upcoming vote that impacts their most basic rights. The outcry over the Senate vote had an impact and the House is now expected to vote on a similar amendment in a matter of days. 
Facebook and their fact-checking partner's arbitrary decision to flag the Vice article as misinformation could have a significant impact on that vote. This is not some epic conspiracy. I'm sure the fact-checker at USA Today did their best to research this complex topic and come to a determination they felt was fair. I doubt they're secretly working for the surveillance state. Reporters will always bring their implicit biases to the way they frame stories, which details they include, and which ones they omit. In this case, clearly the Vice story was more sympathetic to civil liberties advocates working to limit government surveillance. The USA Today piece is more sympathetic to the government and intelligence agencies. Neither of them are, quote, false, and neither of them should be effectively censored by Facebook or buried by its non-transparent algorithm in the name of stopping disinformation. Facebook should not be putting its thumb on the scale to say that one article is more true than the other when such determinations can be incredibly subjective and have profound implications for the democratic process. The spread of online hate and outright lies on platforms like Facebook is a real problem, but it's not a problem that can be fixed with more censorship or by demanding that big tech companies become the arbiters of what is and isn't true. Around the world, we've seen governments scrambling to stem the flow of misinformation, often by enacting policies that do more harm than good. Ethiopia's, quote, hate speech and disinformation prevention and suppression proclamation has been decried by activists there as being abused to stifle free expression and freedom of the press. Similar legislation in Egypt has raised alarm bells for human rights groups. YouTube's attempt to remove white nationalist videos from its platform resulted in automated censorship of anti-racist videos from groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center. In the United States, progressive groups and lawmakers rightly concerned about the rise of the far-right online activity and attempts by state actors to manipulate elections have increasingly turned to calls for internet censorship, deplatforming, and more aggressive moderation by companies like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. These calls are well-intentioned, but ultimately misguided. Empowering for-profit companies to become the referees of speech and determine what we are and are not allowed to debate, solidifies the status quo and largely benefits the powerful while silencing the oppressed. And in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, this situation could easily get worse very quickly. Facebook has already admitted that it's relying more on the use of artificial intelligence and prioritizing the, quote, removal of harmful content over all else. Implied is that they are prioritizing removing harmful content over ensuring that their moderation systems don't also remove legitimate content in the process. A software bug led Facebook to remove factual posts about COVID-19 from actual healthcare professionals, for example. There is no silver bullet solution that will stop the spread of online misinformation without resulting in collateral damage and censorship of legitimate content and marginalized voices. Instead of calling for more aggressive moderation, we should address the problem at its root. Big tech companies' underlying business model of data harvesting, micro-targeting, and artificial algorithmic amplification 
maximize for engagement above all else. These inherent flaws have become societal crises as a tiny handful of companies have become so large that their policies become de facto law for the entire internet. Something that can only be addressed by either breaking them up or building decentralized alternatives. The problem with Facebook is not that it's a place where people can say what they want or share articles that may or may not be true. It's that Facebook is not a town square. It's a machine designed to make money by shoving content down the throats of people that Facebook thinks will engage with it and thus generate advertising revenue, no matter what the cost. Politicians, pundits, racists, and scam artists have always lied in public. Facebook allows them to directly target those lies to the people most likely to believe them. Facebook isn't broken. It's working exactly as intended. The product that Facebook has built is fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and democracy. And begging Mark Zuckerberg to take down things we don't like won't change that. Worse, if we fail to address the underlying problems and get caught in an endless game of partisan whack-a-mole or working the refs, we'll continue to see more and more collateral damage, like with my post about the Patriot Act. Facebook's surveillance capitalist business model inadvertently helped prop up the U.S. government's surveillance state ahead of a crucial vote. It's hard to imagine a better example of how urgent it is that we hold big tech companies accountable and fight for policies that limit their ability to manipulate and control public debate, rather than giving them more power in the name of truth. Next up is a piece uh, written by Climate and Capitalism, published at popularresistance.org. Five Proposals for a Better World After the Pandemic 170 Dutch academics signed Manifesto for Sustainable, Equal, and Diverse Societies Based on International Solidarity. The following statement, signed by 170 academics from eight universities in the Netherlands, has been widely reported in the Dutch press, becoming a focus for discussion on how to avoid repeating past mistakes when planning for the future. COVID-19 has shaken the world. It has already led to the loss or devastation of countless lives. While many people in vital professions are working day and night to attend to the sick and stop further spread, personal and social losses and the fight to stop these demand our continued respect and support. At the same time, it is critical to view this pandemic in historical context in order to avoid repeating past mistakes when we plan for the future. The fact that COVID-19 has already had such a major economic impact is due, amongst other factors, to the economic development model that has been dominant globally over the last 30 years. This model demands ever-growing circulation of goods and people, despite the countless ecological problems and growing inequalities it generates. Over the last few weeks, the weaknesses of the neoliberal growth machine have been painfully exposed. Among other issues we have seen, 
large companies pleading for immediate state support once effective demand falls away for even a short time, insecure jobs being lost or put on hold, and further strain placed on already underfunded health care systems. People who recently confronted the government in their struggles for recognition and decent salaries are now remarkably considered to have, quote, vital professions in health care, elderly care, public transport, and education. A further weakness of the current system, and one that is not yet prominent in discussions of the pandemic, is the link between economic development, the loss of biodiversity, and important ecosystem functions, and the opportunity for diseases like COVID-19 to spread among humans. These are lethal links and could become much more so. The WHO has already estimated that globally 4.2 million people die each year from outdoor air pollution and that the impacts of climate change are expected to cause 250,000 additional deaths per year between 2030 and 2050. Experts warn that with further severe degradation of the ecosystems, a scenario that is to be expected under the current economic model, Chances for further and even stronger virus outbreaks on top of these unfolding catastrophes are realistic. All this requires drastic and integrated action and makes it critical to start planning for a post-COVID-19 world as soon as possible. While some short-term positive social and environmental impacts have emerged in the crisis, such as community support, local organizing and solidarity, less pollution, and greenhouse gas emissions. These changes will be temporary and marginalized without concerted efforts for broader political and economic change. It is therefore necessary to envision how this current situation could lead to a more sustainable, fair, equitable, healthy, and resilient form of economic development going forward, one that acknowledges the structurally unsound pressures of the neoliberal model on people and environments and that establishes policies and political strategies to achieve meaningful, sustainable, and equitable change. This brief manifesto signed by 162 Netherlands-based scholars working on issues around development aims to summarize what we know from our collective research and writing to be critical and successful policy strategies for moving forward during and after the crisis. We propose five key policy proposals for a post-COVID-19 development model, all of which can be implemented immediately and sustained after this particular crisis has subsided. 1. A move away from development focused on aggregate GDP growth. To differentiate among sectors that can grow and need investment, the so-called critical public sectors in clean energy, education, health, and more, and sectors that need to radically degrow due to their fundamental unsustainability or their role in driving continuous and excessive consumption, especially private sector oil, gas, mining, advertising, and so forth. Number two, an economic framework focused on redistribution, which establishes a universal basic income rooted in a universal social policy system. A strong progressive taxation of income, profits, and wealth. Reduced working hours and job sharing. And recognizes care work as essential. Care work and essential public services such as health and education 
for their intrinsic value. Number three, agricultural transformation towards regenerative agriculture based on biodiversity conservation, sustainable and mostly local and vegetarian food production, as well as fair agricultural employment conditions and wages. Number four, reduction of consumption and travel. With a drastic shift from luxury and wasteful consumption and travel to basic, necessary, sustainable, and satisfying consumption and travel. Number five, debt cancellation, especially for workers and small business owners and for countries in the global south, both from richer countries and the international financial institutions. As academics, we are convinced that this policy vision will lead to more sustainable, equal, and diverse societies based on international solidarity, and one that can better prevent and deal with shocks and pandemics to come. For us, the question is no longer whether we need to start implementing these strategies, but how do we go about it? As we acknowledge those groups hardest hit by this particular crisis in the Netherlands and beyond, we can do justice to them by being proactive in ensuring that future crisis will be much less severe, cause much less suffering, or not happen at all. Most of all, we need to work on these positive visions to counter disaster capitalist responses that aim to make even more profit out of others' misery and strengthen those policies that have rendered the planet unsustainable. Together with many other communities in the Netherlands and globally, We believe the time is right for such a positive and meaningful vision going forward. We urge politicians, policymakers, and the general public to start organizing for their implementation sooner rather than later. And it's really, really important as we wind our way through this pandemic and its uh, related implications that we look towards changing business as usual. In some ways, we're being forced to. And if, but what if we're not very careful about what we develop in reaction to the pandemic situation, then we're going to build up and reinforce the same programs and policies that got us into this mess as a reaction to it. Next up is a piece published at sanders.senate.gov. Sanders, Gillibrand, Booker, Warren, Markey, Merkley, Harris introduce Emergency Health Care Guarantee Act. Today, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act to eliminate all out-of-pocket health costs for every person in America during the COVID-19 crisis. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand, Edward Markey, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Jeff Merkley, and Kamala Harris co-sponsored the legislation. Quote, During this public health crisis, we must make sure that everyone in America is able to receive all of the medical care they need, regardless of their income, immigration status, or insurance coverage. No one in this country should be afraid to go to the doctor because of the cost, especially during a pandemic. 
The American people deserve an emergency health care response that is simple, straightforward, comprehensive, and cost-effective, said Sanders. We should empower Medicare to pay all of the medical bills of the uninsured and underinsured, including prescription drugs, for the duration of the coronavirus pandemic. When so many people in this country are struggling economically and terrified that the thought of becoming sick the federal government has a responsibility to take the burden of health care costs off the backs of the American people. The legislation we are introducing today does just that. New polling reveals overwhelming enthusiasm for Sanders' proposal. According to Data for Progress, 73% of American voters support Medicare covering all out-of-pocket health expenses during this emergency, including 58% of Republicans. In comparison, 55% backed a separate proposal to cover the cost of insurance premiums through COBRA, a federal program that allows those who have lost their jobs to temporarily retain their former employer's health insurance coverage. When presented with evidence that Sanders' emergency Medicare proposal is significantly less expensive, despite covering millions more people, 61% preferred Sanders' approach versus 14% who backed COBRA subsidies. Sanders has previously argued that proposals to expand COBRA benefits with taxpayer subsidies would provide insurance corporations with hundreds of billions of dollars in windfall profits, but do nothing to cover those who have already lacked employer-provided insurance or those who continue to be deterred from seeking medical assistance due to high deductibles, which require roughly $1,800 on average in annual out-of-pocket spending before private insurance coverage kicks in. Sanders' legislation, in contrast, would simply leverage the existing Medicare payment infrastructure to affordably and efficiently pay all costs of treatment for the uninsured and cover all out-of-pocket costs, such as copayments and deductibles, for those who already have public or private insurance. The bill also halts medical debt collections, prohibits private insurance companies from increasing cost-sharing, and requires ongoing data collection and weekly reporting on health disparities related to COVID-19. The legislation would be effective until a COVID-19 vaccine is widely available to the public. Quote, Healthcare is a right, not a privilege, said Gillibrand. The COVID-19 pandemic has made clear that every individual needs access to affordable health care, and the Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act would cover everyone's out-of-pocket health care expenses during this emergency, regardless of insurance status. I am proud to partner with Senator Sanders and my colleagues to introduce this important legislation because we need to guarantee treatment and care to every individual American in order to safely reopen our economy. Quote, As the nation continues to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, it is critical that all families have access to the health care they need without having to worry about out-of-pocket costs, said Booker. This legislation will ensure medical debt and health care costs aren't barriers for those seeking care. This is especially important for low-income communities, communities of color, and immigrant communities who face greater health inequities and are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Quote, No American should ever go broke paying for medical care, especially not during a public health emergency, said Warren. 
with families struggling to make ends meet now more than ever. I'm glad to partner with Senator Sanders on a bill to eliminate out-of-pocket costs for necessary health care and halt medical debt collections during this economic crisis. Quote, Americans shouldn't worry about whether they can afford treatment if they come down with the coronavirus, said Markey. They shouldn't worry about bankruptcy caused by medical bills or out-of-pocket costs. Congress has taken steps to support our economy and our health care providers, but we must do more to protect all Americans in this time of crisis. Quote, No family should go bankrupt because they had misfortune of getting sick, especially as our nation continues to grapple with a dangerous pandemic, said Merkley. In a pandemic, every one of us is better off if someone who's sick can go to the doctor and get care as soon as they need it. The time is now for Congress to eliminate out-of-pocket health costs for essential care and halt the collection of medical debts to help everyone get the care they need and to help our country get through this pandemic. Quote, The COVID-19 pandemic has placed Americans under tremendous stress, said Harris, on top of wondering how they will pay the rent and put food on the table. Paying for medical treatment if they get sick should not be another worry for families. I'm proud to join my colleagues to introduce this legislation to protect patients from cost barriers to the medical care they need to stay healthy. Quote, Our broken health care system is failing to protect millions of Americans from the coronavirus pandemic. Now more than ever, we need to take bold action to prevent more Americans from getting sick or dying said Representative Jayapal, who sponsored the legislation in the House. Everyone in America should have guaranteed access to health care, especially during a national emergency. Quote, COVID-19 has further exposed the inequities of the health care system in our nation, and this can no longer be ignored, said Representative Bass, who co-led the legislation in the House. If we expect to overcome this health crisis as a nation, we must ensure that quality health care is available and affordable for all. We're all in this together. As we have seen over the last few months, our most vulnerable communities have been impacted gravely by COVID-19 and a health care system that continues to fail them. If there was ever a time to get this right, this is it. Quote, the only way to remove the threat of COVID-19 is to keep everyone healthy and act without delay to contain the spread, said Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, whose union endorsed the legislation. When any individual has to weigh paying our bills or paying for medical attention, we are all less safe because public health takes a back seat to personal financial concerns. We need care for everyone, and even those of us with union-negotiated health care coverage shouldn't have to worry about co-pays, deductibles, or prescription costs. Our physical, mental, and financial health depends on full care for all. Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, said, quote, Over 36 million people just lost their jobs, and in many cases their health care coverage as well in the middle of a pandemic. Even many people who still have insurance have co-pays and deductibles that can drive them into bankruptcy. 
people in their 50s and early 60s who are likely to have more severe cases of COVID-19 but aren't yet eligible for Medicare are in the greatest financial as well as medical danger. This is why we support the Emergency Healthcare Guarantee Act to immediately cancel out-of-pocket costs for health care for everyone in this country during the public health emergency. Quote, Registered nurses are on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we know from our experiences at the bedside that people who are uninsured or underinsured are forgoing the health care they need because they can't afford it, said Bonnie Castillo, RN, Executive Director of National Nurses United. We cannot adequately respond to the COVID-19 crisis unless we guarantee health care to every person living in our country. The Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act would do just this, by ensuring that every patient gets the care they need without out-of-pocket costs during the COVID-19 pandemic. National Nurses United applaud Senator Sanders, Congresswoman Jayapal, and Congresswoman Bass for introducing this critical legislation and urges every member of Congress to support this bill. Sanders' bill enjoys endorsement of 32 national organizations and unions, including the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, National Nurses United, Service Employees International Union, United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, Center for Popular Democracy, Indivisible, League of United Latin American Citizens, MoveOn.org, National Domestic Workers Alliance, People's Action, Progressive Change Campaign Committee, Public Citizen, Social Security Works, Sunrise Movement, United We Dream, Working Families Party, Business for Medicare for All, Debs Jones Douglas Institute, Democracy for America, Democratic Socialists of America, Economic Opportunity Institute, Economic Policy Institute, Faith Action Network, Healthcare Now, Hometown Action, Jane Addams Senior Center, Labor Campaign for Single Payer, Legal Voice, Medicare for All Now, Partners for Dignity and Rights, Presente.org, and Progressive Democrats of America. Joining Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and Bass in the House to co-sponsor the Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act are Representatives DeFazio, Garcia, Kennedy, Kana, Meng, Ocasio-Cortez, Omar, Pocan, Presley, Raskin, Bonamici, Dingle, Cohen, Norton, Tlaib, and Espayat. And finally, let's read that bill. If you dig back into the uh, the archives deep down in the the basement of Bernie twenty twenty, you'll find somewhere back there. I read the um, Medicare for All Act, and uh, that was longer than this. And so uh, this, I think, will uh, enlighten us all on the details in this legislation. A bill to provide reimbursement for certain costs of healthcare items and services, including prescription drugs, 
furnished during the public health emergency declared with respect to COVID-19. Be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. Short title. This act may be cited as the Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act. I am very happy they didn't come up with some uh, cockamamie. That's a word we don't use use enough these days. Cockamamie um, initialism like the recently passed HEROES Act in which you have to string together a list of semi-coherent, semi-related words to spell out a word that you can use as your short title. Once again, this act may be cited as the Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act. Reimbursements for certain costs of healthcare items and services, including prescription drugs furnished during public health emergency. In general, during the period beginning on the date of enactment of this act and ending on the date the Secretary certifies to Congress that a vaccine approved by the Food and Drug Administration for COVID-19 is widely available to the public, the Secretary shall make payments to qualified providers with respect to applicable health care items and services as defined in subsection B that are furnished to an applicable individual an amount equal to 1. In the case of any portion of such period in which the applicable individual is enrolled in a public or private health insurance plan, the amount of any cost sharing, including any deductibles, co-payments, co-insurance, or similar charges that would otherwise be applicable under such a plan, including with respect to prescription drug coverage under the plan. 2. In the case of any portion of such period in which an applicable individual is uninsured, an amount equal to the amount that would be paid to the qualified provider for the same or equivalent items or services, including with respect to any inpatient or physician-administered drugs, and excluding outpatient prescription drugs or biologicals with respect to which coverage is provided under subsection E. Under the Medicare program, under Title XVIII, yeah, it's too, too fast to translate that in my head, of the Social Security Act. Applicable health care items and services, applicable individual, defined in this section. The term applicable health care items and services means with respect to an applicable individual, any healthcare item and service that are medically necessary or appropriate for the maintenance of health or for the diagnosis, treatment, or rehabilitation of a health condition of the applicable individual, including any testing services and treatments for COVID-19 or related complications, including vaccines, diagnostic tests, drugs, and biologicals, and therapies, and in the case of an applicable individual who is enrolled in a public or private health insurance plan, any health care items and services covered by such a plan as of March 1, 2020, or in the case of an applicable individual who enrolls in such a plan after that date, any health care items and services covered by such a plan as of the date of such enrollment. The term applicable individual means an individual who is a resident of the United States. Requirements. 
no effect on applicable cost-sharing requirements. Nothing in this section shall affect the uh, application of any requirements applicable under federal or state law with respect to coverage of healthcare items and services without any cost-sharing. Maintenance of effort. In general, during the period described in subsection A, a public or private health plan shall not increase cost sharing, decrease benefits, or otherwise make coverage less generous than the benefits offered on the date of the enactment of this act. New items and services. During such period, a public or private health plan shall provide coverage of new items and services, including those related to COVID-19, as appropriate, at a minimum, at a level consistent with the prior coverage practices and formularies of the plan. Limitation on out-of-pocket expenses. During such period, in order to be eligible to receive payments under this section, a qualified provider shall agree not to impose on an applicable individual any charge for applicable health care items and services furnished to the applicable individual. Permissible billing of plans, limitation on balance billing. During such period, in order to be eligible to receive payments under this section, a qualified provider shall agree with respect to applicable health care items and services furnished to an applicable individual when such individual is enrolled in a public or private health insurance plan. A. Not to impose any charge on the plan for such items and services beyond the amount otherwise payable by the plan and b. Not to bill the applicable individual for any amounts in excess of the amount described in subparagraph a. Medical debt collection. A qualified provider shall agree a. To immediately halt all medical debt collection, including collection activities carried out by third parties during such period and shall not collect a medical debt or have third parties collect medical debt for applicable health care items and services furnished during such period, and b. to refrain from pursuing medical debt collection, including collection activities carried out by third parties, after such period with respect to items and services related to the diagnosis or treatment of COVID-19, regardless of whether such services were furnished before, during, or after such period and shall not collect medical debt or have third parties collect medical debt for such items or services after such period. Submission of bills and documentation. A qualified provider shall agree to submit bills and any required supporting documentation relating to the provision of applicable health care items and services within 30 days after the date of providing such services in such manner as the secretary determines appropriate. Waiver of Late Enrollment Penalties Under Medicare During the period described in subsection A, no increase in the monthly premium of an individual pursuant to section 1818C, 1839B, or 1860D13 of the Social Security Act shall be affected in the case of any individual who enrolls for benefits under Title 18 of such act with respect to any period prior to the date of such enrollment. Coverage with respect to outpatient prescription drugs. 
In general, during the period described in subsection A, with respect to outpatient prescription drugs or biologicals described in subsection B1A, that are dispensed to uninsured individuals, the Secretary shall establish procedures under which such drugs or biologicals are dispensed at no cost to such individuals. Pharmacies that dispense such drugs or biologicals, one, are reimbursed by the Secretary for such drugs or biologicals dispensed to such individuals at an amount equal to the price paid by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to procure the drug or biological under the laws administered by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs and agree not to charge such individuals for any difference between the amount reimbursed under Clause 1 and the cost to the pharmacy for the drug. And manufacturers of such drugs or biologicals reimburse pharmacies for any difference described in subparagraph B2 with respect to drugs or biologicals of the manufacturer that are dispensed to such individuals. Condition of Coverage Under Medicare During the period described in subsection A, no coverage may be provided under Part B or D of Title 18 of the Social Security Act with respect to a drug or biological of a manufacturer if the manufacturer does not enter into an agreement with the Secretary to carry out the requirements applicable with respect to such manufacturers under this subsection. Requirement for Participating Pharmacies During the period described in subsection A, a prescription drug plan under Part D of Title 18 of the Social Security Act may not contract with a pharmacy if the pharmacy does not enter into an agreement with the Secretary to carry out the requirements applicable with respect to pharmacies under this subsection. Other Definitions Public or Private Health Insurance Plan In general, the term public or private health insurance plan means any of the following. A group health plan or group health insurance coverage, such as such terms are defined in Section 2791 of the Public Health Service Act. A qualified health plan as defined in Section 1301 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Subject to Paragraph B, any health insurance coverage, other than a plan described in Clause 2, offered in the individual market, as such terms are defined in Section 2791 of the Public Health Service Act, including any short-term, limited-duration insurance. A health plan offered under Chapter 89 of Title V United States Code. A federal health care program as defined under Section 1128BF of the Social Security Act. Including health benefits furnished under the TRICARE program, health benefits furnished to veterans under the laws administered by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and health benefits furnished to Indians as defined in Section 4 of the Indian Health Care Improvement Act, receiving health services through the Indian Health Service, including through an urban Indian organization, regardless of whether such benefits are for items or services that have been authorized. Under the Purchase Referred Care System, funded by the Indian Health Service, or are covered as health service of the Indian Health Service. Limitation on Individual Health Insurance Coverage The term public or private health insurance coverage includes the health insurance coverage described in Clause 3 of subparagraph A only with respect to an individual 
was enrolled in such coverage on March 1, 2020. Qualified Provider The term qualified provider means a healthcare provider who is a participating provider under the Medicare program under Title 18 of the Social Security Act. Such term includes a healthcare provider who is not a participating provider under such program if the healthcare provider would meet the criteria for such participation and if the state requires the healthcare provider to be licensed by the state, is licensed by the state in which the items or services are furnished. Secretary. The term secretary means the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Implementation. In general, the Secretary, in coordination with the Secretary of the Treasury, the Commissioner of Social Security, and the Secretary of Labor, shall implement the provisions of this section not later than the date that is seven days after the date of the enactment of this Act. Ensuring timely payment. The Secretary shall establish a process and issue such guidance as is necessary to ensure a qualified provider receives payments under this section in a timely manner. Ensuring collection of data on disparities. The Secretary shall implement this section in a manner and issue such guidance as is necessary to allow for the ongoing accurate and timely collection and analysis of data on disparities in accordance with subsection H. H. Collection of data on disparities. In general, during the period described in subsection A, the Secretary shall collect data on disparities across race, ethnicity, primary language, gender, sexual orientation, disability status, age, geographic area, insurance status, and socioeconomic status. In health outcomes and access to health care related to the COVID-19 outbreak, including data on COVID-19 cases, treatment, and deaths, and in patient access to applicable healthcare systems, healthcare items, and services under this section. Public availability. The Secretary shall make data collected under this subsection publicly available on the internet website of the Department of Health and Human Services as soon as is practicable, but not later than 30 days after the date of enactment of this Act in a manner that allows researchers, scholars, healthcare providers, and others to access and analyze such data without compromising patient privacy and update such data on a weekly basis thereafter for the duration of the period described in subsection A. Weekly Reports to Congress In general, on a weekly basis during the period described in subsection A, the Secretary shall report to Congress on a. The implementation of this section, including information on the amount, type, and geographic distribution of payments to qualified providers under this section. And b. Any disparities in health and access to health care related to the COVID-19 outbreak or patient access to applicable health care items and services under this section, as identified through the collection and analysis of data collected under subsection h. Public Availability the Secretary shall make each report submitted under Paragraph 1 publicly available on the Internet website of the Department of Health and Human Services. Funding There are authorized to be appropriated such sums as are necessary to carry out this section. And that is the full text of the emergency 
what's this called again? Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act. And I have to say, it's all interesting. It's all, it's a, a good bill, good outline of the things that are necessary to make sure that people get the health care they need during this pandemic. But my absolute favorite section has to be the funding section. I'm going to read it one more time since it was the last thing I read. Section J, funding. There are authorized to be appropriated such sums as are necessary to carry out this section. Period. The end. This goes to the underlying fact that government programs can be government funded. And that's like, you've all been taught that, well, all of our government spending comes from our tax dollars. And as I've learned over the last couple of years, that's just bullshit. It's crap. It's a lie. It doesn't happen that way. Your tax dollars offset a bit of our government spending, government spending, but much government spending is deficit spending. It's related to debt. It's loaned. It's loaned mostly through banks. Most government spending is loaned to banks and then banks loan it to the public and then banks get interest and the government ultimately gets interest on their loans to the banks. Um, It's not the way it has to be. The government can spend money directly to the end user. The government can, they don't print the money anymore, not this kind of money. They print this general circulation money still. But for this kind of money, the government can update a spreadsheet and say, here's a trillion dollars, and then use that trillion dollars in that account to pay doctors directly. Doctors submit their bills. The government uses that money to pay the doctors. The doctors then convert can convert that into cash or can use that for in whatever manner is legally allowed. Um, but that's how it works. This is how government spending works. This is how federal spending works. There are authorized to be appropriated such sums as are necessary to carry out this section. Period. How are you going to pay for it is is very frequently not a valid question. It's only valid in the sense that we misunderstand government spending. We think government spending is akin and similar to household spending. Household spending, you have costs and you have income and that's it. It's You're in your own little bubble and if you're costs are greater than your income, then you either go into debt that you eventually pay later or don't ever pay. And that, of course, screws with your your creditworthiness. Or you generate enough income to maintain or support your outflows. But that's not how government spending works. So if you want to know more about government spending, read about modern monetary theory, MMT, and pay attention to, you don't have to pay a lot of attention, pay a little bit of attention 
listen to smart people who know how the Fed works, how the banking system works, and how that money is created that gets given to banks to keep those banks solvent so that they can lend money, so that they can charge you interest on money and massive fees on whatever is allowed. Uh, I won't go deeper into into that here, but uh, a good bill to cover medical care for all Americans, out-of-pocket expenses, for those that are underinsured, and for those that are uninsured for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we need to work and fight and share it with people, tell people about it, talk to our legislators about it, your representatives, your senators, and convince them to support this bill. And that'll wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Once again, you can check out all the back episodes at bernie-2020.com. I'm not like the federal government. I could use a few dollars. I could use some more income to help try to to balance the outflow of the costs of doing this and other podcasts that I do. If you want to make a donation, you can go to bernie-2020.com. And there's some links on the sidebar there. You can make a one-time or recurring monthly donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Eventually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be changing the name of this podcast, transitioning. I think the content will be very similar. But as Bernie has suspended his campaign, uh, but 2020 is not over yet, but it's half over. Uh, much like with my earlier incarnation with Bernie 2016, when I started this podcast, I had to transition that name to Bernie 2020. I'll have to transition this one again. Really, really a bad idea to start a podcast with an expiration date on it, more or less. Uh, But it will transition. It'll be a new name, maybe a slightly different direction, but much, much of the content will be similar. Um, So that will come in the future. We'll talk about it more then. But now... You can listen to Deborah Van Cleef. This is the song Talking Healthcare. Thanks for listening. I woke up one morning, I was feeling sick. Called up the doctor to see me quick. Voice on the phone said with no hesitation, if you've got insurance, you're our patient. I said, it's just a sore throat. I can pay the bill. She said, well, It'll be 95 bucks to look at your tonsils and 150 to establish you as a patient. So I called around to some companies and I said, I'd like to buy some insurance, please. And they said, we've got to examine you first, find out if you're an acceptable risk. We've got to make sure you won't actually get sick. You know, health insurance is for healthy people. my blood and my pee and they scrutinized every inch of me took the medical history of all my relations back about a dozen generations then they said we gotta know one more thing do you have any pre-existing conditions just one I said but it's terminal 
It's called Life. So they signed me up and they told me the terms for helping my body to fend off germs with a co-payment here, deductible there, sky-high premium for each month's care. They said, if you have to go to the hospital, don't worry, we'll be right there looking over your doctor's shoulder. Well, I was starting to see where the problem lay and why I was having to pay and pay. I said, this isn't really about my health. It's something to do with increasing your wealth. They said, what country do you think you're living in? Cuba? France? England? Germany? Taiwan? Brazil? Hungary? New Zealand? Australia? Denmark? Norway, Chile, South Korea, Uruguay, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein. Well, the truth is, with expectations like that, you could be living in any industrialized country in the world except for these United States where there's 47 million of us out here on our own. Yes, healthcare ought to be guaranteed. It's about our lives, not some middleman's greed. And if we all get together and organize, we can have a new system. Get rid of those guys. Yep, we can have universal coverage. Healthcare for people, not for profit. In fact, pretty soon we'll all be feeling so good we'll think we died and went to Canada.